This podcast may contain explicit language. Welcome to the Greatest Movie of All Time podcast, the show that uses a unique grading style to redefine what the greatest movies are. I'm Tom Duncan. And I'm Dana Duncan. We also welcome our first-time guest, a stand-up comedian and host of the Midnight Facts for Insomniacs podcast, Shane Rogers. Welcome to the show. Oh, thanks for having me, you guys. I've uh, been enjoying listening, and I'm excited to be here. Thank you very much for that. How are you tonight? I'm doing really well. It's been a little bit of a chaotic day, but this is good. This is, it's nothing better than sitting down and talking about a movie. I agree. Absolutely. But Shane, just with all new guests to the show, we'd like to ask you a few questions to allow the audience to get to know you. So first, just tell us a little bit about yourself, what you do, and why you love movies. So I am a, as you mentioned, I am a comedian and podcast host, and also a longtime cinephile, a big movie enthusiast. I have always loved movies. My dad actually was a photo editor for a bunch of kind of prominent magazines, and so he was very interested in the visual arts. And so he has always been a film buff and he took me to movies from when I was really small, probably movies that I shouldn't have been seeing yet. He had to, I think, uh, take me out of a few movies where I was maybe, you know, having a breakdown or something. We went and saw, I think, The Wall, Pink Floyd's The Wall when I was like 11 or something and I had a crying fit and he had to pull me out of there. But in a lot of ways, you know, he really introduced me to, to film and I think is responsible for my love of cinema and probably a lot of nightmares and, and therapy as well. But uh, I've really always been a big fan of, of movies to this day. Uh, my wife and I, she's also a big fan of movies. And it's just something that, you know, I kind of immersed myself in uh, even after moving out of the house. And you know, I don't have a lot of experience myself with the, being in the film industry. I would love to do uh, some acting or something in the future. Uh, but at this point, I'm, I'm just a huge fan. Yes, obviously this podcast is centered on that father-son relationship and passing the torch from one generation to the next. Our studio is named after my grandfather because he passed it to my dad. My dad passed it on to me. And if I were ever fortunate enough to have children, it would probably pass on yet again. But uh, we always love to hear those stories. So thank you for that. Second question we always ask, what's your favorite movie and why? I feel bad because I'm going to kind of duck the question a little bit. I just, I can't pick, I think, one movie. Uh, that would be so hard. I have favorites in different genres, I think. But, you know, I can definitely list some some movies that I always go back to. Uh, I always, you know, The Princess Bride is just a classic movie that I probably will never tire of. I think I could watch it over and over again. I recently watched uh, Annie Hall again, which I had seen when I was pretty young and still just holds up. I've seen it probably, you know, 20 times in my life. And then some more kind of contemporary films that are just maybe just more me and not as critically acclaimed, but like Gattaca is is a movie that I really love and I watch a lot. But I think, like I said, sort of in every genre I have, you know, I have a favorite, uh, you know, Goodfellas would be my favorite sort of uh, Robert De Niro gangster movie. And, and, you know, I just I have my favorites within each genre, but it would be, I think, impossible to choose an overarching favorite. I definitely understand what you mean there. I've let it known on the show many times that I have an, a 1A, 1B, and 1C. So trying to pick just one, I feel, is almost a Sophie's choice. Yeah, that's a good way to describe it. Absolutely. Can't, uh, can't choose just one of my babies. So then what makes a good movie for you? 
I think that has really changed over the years. I think when I was younger and very into kind of the art of cinema, I really wanted to be challenged by a movie. I wanted it to be, you know, I, I was very critical, I think, of the artistic value of films. And that has changed a lot for me. I think now I'm much less critical in some ways of movies than I used to be. I really want a movie to be enjoyable. I want to spend some time in a world. I want to kind of be taken away. So for me, a movie should be really immersive. I want to kind of believe and believable. Like, you know, you have to suspend disbelief for a movie. And so I want it to be quality enough that I'm kind of taken away and 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 really believe that this movie is real, even if it's, you know, superheroes or something. I want to believe in that world. And so that's that's a big thing for me, verisimilitude, I guess. But then also just being entertained. Like, I just want to enjoy a movie. I want to sit back and be able to grab some popcorn. And I'm much less critical, I think, of the actual, you know, cinematography and everything than I used to be. And I'm much more interested in just kind of an enjoyable experience these days. Kind of that escapism. Yeah, escapism. All right. Well, thank you for going through our hot seat here. Tonight, we apply our patent-pending Stanley rubric to the first movie of our month of journalism movies with Broadcast News from 1987 for its 35th anniversary. Written and directed by James L. Brooks, starring Holly Hunter, William Hurt, and Albert Brooks. This movie was nominated for seven Academy Awards and was nominated twice for the AFI 100 Years 100 Movies list, both in 1998 and 2007. So let's start here. Despite celebrating its 35th anniversary this year, how would either of you say broadcast news is still a commentary on the state of journalism today? I guess we'll start with you, Dad. <laughs> As I'm going through Twitter and watching Bill Crystal just rip all over Tucker Carlson, I can't understand how it would be relevant at all. Yeah. there It's much more show than substance. And I think that was what the whole plot or the whole concept was. We've went from Walter Cronkite to Mr. America. Yeah, I think this movie was really predicting and lamenting where we might go in journalism. And we're there. You know, everything that this movie was scared of has come to pass. Yeah, I would definitely tend to agree that it has become much more of an entertainment feature as opposed to actual journalism. And that the ethics that are supposedly, I actually found somewhat annoying about both Aaron and Jane in this movie, are the things, though, that the average person is crying out for all the time that we need to restore within journalism to actually provide it value to the American public. Yeah, it is interesting that you mentioned you found them annoying because that that's true for me too. As much as I appreciate their sort of integrity on a second watch of this movie, I hadn't seen it for many years. And I did, I actually found myself, we'll get into it, but I found myself much more sympathetic to Tom uh, and found the other two to be kind of grating, honestly, on this watch through. But it then questions who is the watcher on the wall type of situation. If those people can't really get through in an era where that was actually more acceptable and there were more integral people to the industry at the time, then I guess who is that going to be now? Especially with entertainment channels like you kind of brushed over it a bit there, Dad, but Fox News, but I would say CNN to a degree also has done that performative dance over the last few years. Well, even MSNBC has put celebrities on as talk show hosts. There's a blur between what is 
an opinion show and what is uh, news. Jeff Daniels did, and I'm drawing a blank, the Aaron Sorkin TV, The Newsroom. The Newsroom. He did a piece on there that I just recently saw a, a clip from where he said the problem was that when they were creating the whole idea of that there would be one hour of information programming that the networks would have to provide in exchange for having the use of the public airwaves, they never thought about saying you can't have commercials during that hour. So what ends up happening is, is we become more in tune with ratings than we have in presenting the news in a fair and balanced manner. Yeah, I would agree with that. I mean, I think that we have really lost, we've lost the trust in the news that we had. I mean, you know, we don't have the Walter Cronkite and, you know, even Tom Brokaw, there, there was this gravitas and this, it was something that sort of transcended party politics. It was just, you were getting the news from a trusted source. And there was kind of a consensus among Americans that we all could at least trust you know, even if we didn't trust each other and we didn't trust the other side of the aisle, we could trust what was coming out of this one person's mouth because it was going to be unbiased and it was going to be well-researched. There is no one on the air that everyone believes and trusts. We all feel that there's some type of spin and we all distrust for, for different reasons whoever is giving us information because we assume that they have an agenda. And in some cases, most cases, we're probably right. But I think that we've really lost that and this film was, you know, I think this film was a, a, a benchmark. It was sort of a watershed moment where we were realizing that we were losing that. And that was kind of the fear behind the film. And like I said, I think we definitely have. So you mentioned an important word to me there in trust. And I guess I would follow up with the question, is this something that they have lost as an institution or something that we've become so cynical about that we've taken it away? Because trust is a two-way street, and I think that you have to have both sides in order for it to happen. But clearly one side or the other has taken that away. I think it's always a question of, you know, it's a great example of like, you know, why is there so much sex and exploitation and violence in media? And we can blame the media for that. We can blame the, the Hollywood studios for that. But the reason that there's so much sex and violence in movies is because that's what people go to see and that's what is that's what sells, right? So who's really to blame? We are the consumers of news, we are the consumers of media, and we're voting with our pocketbooks and our eyeballs when we decide what to watch. And so I think you have to blame kind of human nature in this case. Like this is what appeals to us most, and that's kind of what the you know, these these organizations have gravitated have gravitated to giving us what is the most, uh, you know, sticky. It's, it's what is going to get more and more eyeballs on their content. And uh, that's, I don't know if that's their fault or ours. But like I said, I think it's honestly just the human condition. I can give two anecdotes that I think are pointing to this. One is from the trust and in, in positive factor, which is after the Ted Offensive, Walter Cronkite came on the CBS Evening News and he said, I'm doing a commentary. And he just said, we cannot win the Vietnam War. And Lyndon Johnson was sitting in the Oval Office and watched it. And he turned to Bill Moyers, press secretary, and he said, I've lost Cronkite. I can't win the next election. And that's when he decided to withdraw from the 68 primaries. That's the kind of power. Can you name any news 
person or agency at this point in time that could say something like that and cause a candidate to decide not to run for the presidency? Maybe, but it would have to be on the same side of the aisle. I don't think there's one that could affect both parties unilaterally the way that Cronkite would at the time. Yeah, but we did have, you know, Tucker Carlson and all of Fox News influencing a sitting president for for many years. I mean, we did have Donald Trump reacting in real time to things that uh, so-called news anchors. I mean, I don't think that Tucker Carlson is even a news anchor. He's a political pundit, but uh, he has taken on that moniker in a lot of ways and uh, did have that kind of influence. But I think you're right that no one that crosses the aisles. The other analogy I would have is, is everybody holds in such high esteem Edward R. Murrow, and he brought integrity to news, and yet he did a fluff show where he was just interviewing celebrities, and that was the deal he made with CBS to allow him to have some leeway, is that he could do this, and kind of even at that point in time in the early 50s was blurring the line between entertainment and news. So let's get more into the movie itself. Dad, let's start with you. What is your relationship to this movie? This is a movie that came out the Christmas, let's see, it would have been my second year of law school. Um, I was just starting to date your mother at that point in time. I had no money, so I did not see this in the theater. So this was one that uh, I would have had on VHS rental, possibly from uh, the local video store, because I think even at that point in time, Blockbuster had not become as dominant as it was for that brief period of time. And I I know I watched this movie with her and thought it was rather humorous because I could see it even at that time how things were changing in the news because they'd forced Cronkite out and brought in Dan Rather. They had uh, gone to Peter Jennings, who even though he was fairly intelligent, looked really good. Tom Brokaw looked a lot better than uh, Chet Hunley or uh, David Brinkley. And uh, I'm going, boy, they're just trying to make this so much of a beauty contest. You pay more attention to the anchor than you do what they're saying. So, Shane, you mentioned you'd seen it once before, but it had been a long time ago. What's your relationship? I actually, I think I've seen it twice before. So I remember that I actually saw it on VHS, too. And I think that I the first time I rented it was because I know that Holly Hunter was in, I think Raising Arizona was like the same year as this movie. Mm-hmm. Yes. And I was a huge fan of Raising Arizona. Like when it came out, I remember renting that a bunch of times. And so at some point I must have seen, I think I just saw the front that Holly Hunter was on this and rented it kind of without even knowing what I was getting into and thinking maybe that it would be more of a of a comedy because it was Albert Brooks and James L. Brooks, who had done, I guess, Taxi, the TV show by that time and was pretty well known in the comedy space. I guess he'd done Terms of Endearment. But for me, I I, I remember thinking that this was going to be a comedic movie. And so the first time I remember just kind of being confused by what I was watching. Uh, And then I watched it a little bit later in life as in my 20s. And in my 20s, I definitely knew what I was getting into and really appreciated it. And I remember liking it. I remember thinking that it was really interesting to get a kind of behind the scenes of the journalism field. And I didn't look at it in the same way that I think I I see it now. I think I found it kind of an entertaining movie with 
maybe some good guys and bad guys that I didn't understand. I think at the time when I saw it, I really thought, like I said, that Tom was kind of the bad guy because he was coming in and undermining what, you know, serious journalists were doing. And I've watching, rewatching it now is very interesting because I feel like uh, I have a very different read on it than I did. But um, yeah, that was, those were my two experiences prior. So this is only my second time watching it. I think the first time I watched it was within the last year. It was not a movie that I grew up being aware of. And even despite doing this show and being a fairly substantial movie fan, this was just not something that was on my radar for a long time. This is stuff that I think I caught because one of my favorite podcasts happened to be doing an episode on this. And so they were talking about it, got me excited about trying to find it and watch it. And my first viewing, I was very confused. I wasn't sure why this thing was as celebrated by this show as they made it out to be. I found the movie a little bit confusing because it's kind of a low stakes plot. There isn't much that's going on that apparently would affect their lives or their careers. They all just kind of move on and do fine. And it's this one brief period of time where they intersect with each other and affect each other's careers, but it doesn't seem to, in the long term, make that big of an impact on what is news or anything else. Whereas every other journalism movie that we've seen, and probably we'll be discussing this month, with the exception of maybe His Girl Friday that we have next week, is dealing with some much heavier subject material. So Network, Spotlight, All the President's Men, Good Night and Good Luck, those types of journalism movies are dealing with much more heavy topics where you were holding the feet to the fire of some powerful institutions. This one has such low stakes, and it's really just the interpersonal relationships of the people that are within this movie. It is the case, but it's it's true this is not a film that you're going to have, you know, openly laugh and chuckle and on, but it is a funny movie. And it's funny because it puts real people in uncomfortable situations. And from somebody who has a a very serious job, who spends all day dealing with illness and death, finding this and seeing people interact and how they interact, there's just a comedic element to it without actually feeling like you have to laugh. It's finding the humor in everyday life. And uh, that's one of the things I think that James L. Brooks has always been good at is putting people into situations that anybody, whether it's his TV or his movies, anybody can come in and go, oh, yeah, I can relate to that. <laughs> yeah, I've been there. And and that's the situation here. I think anybody who's worked in a, in a more professional environment where there's some level of it's high powered, more or less, will see that. There are these people that are just very flawed characters and they have to portray themselves as being something they're not in real life. And that's ultimately what uh, I think you find with these three characters. They're trying to be something and they fall short of what they want to accomplish. Now, you talked a lot about the humor in this, and it's not a movie, as you indicated, that I'm just busting a gut laughing at during the course of watching it. However, I would say I was in the other room while you were watching it. I think it was, what, last night? And I started to find more of the funny parts of this movie. And I would actually say I chuckled a bit while going through the quotes to nominate for later in the show that there are quite a number of funny lines. 
once you think back on them. But it's not something that I reacted to in the moment and just had a gut reaction laugh. Well, one of the things I thought was the funniest thing was is how many times Albert Brooks' character says what you're thinking and that you would never in reality say. He just seemed to have a knack for opening his mouth and blurting out whatever was on his mind, no matter what the ramifications were. And it just seemed to irritate everybody around him. And that's why we have filters for that very reason. We don't want to get beat up by the other kids in high school. Mm -hmm. I thought that was interesting because I sort of, you mentioned that is why we have filters. And I kind of, I had that same thought while I was watching this, which is like, I appreciate that he had that quality for the movie because he does just tell you exactly what's on his mind. And that's really helpful because you're not a mind reader when you're watching a movie. But it also reminds you that there are reasons that we don't say everything that we think and that there is a reason that he hasn't exceeded in his job to where he'd like to be. It's not just that he's not, you know, that was one thing that I found really interesting for me. I, I remember on an, on an initial watch, I really thought, oh, this is the guy who d isn't getting what he deserves because he's the smart guy. He's the guy who is very competent. He knows his job and he should be the the head. You know, he should be the, the lead anchor. And on this second viewing, I was going, oh, no, I get why you can't have this guy be the head anchor. He's neurotic. He doesn't he can't hold back. He can't handle his emotions. He can't keep his cool. He's there's no way he should be in that chair. He needs to be behind the scenes. And so it was interesting for me to like have a different view of this and say like, you know, even though he's a sympathetic character, he's not necessarily, I didn't find him all that likable on this watch. And also I definitely understand why he's not doing as well as he thinks he should be doing. And I think that might be one of the master strokes of this movie. It is a topic that I've discussed before on the show, but of the audience character, it's usually the person that you can relate to the most. And maybe it is quite that you can relate to all three of them at different points, depending on your mood and where you're at in your station in life, the context surrounding you, that you could relate to any one of these at any given time. Yeah, that's true. I think that they all, you know, they're all very flawed, but that gives us sympathy for them to some extent. But they are not necessarily all super likable. For sure. I like that you brought up um, that it was low stakes. That was something that I appreciated more on this viewing as well and kind of enjoyed the fact there was nothing that really hinged on this except for their careers and their own sense of fulfillment in life. That was kind of all that mattered was like, are they going to find fulfillment? It wasn't like, are they going to bring world peace somehow or take down a president or bring some scandal to light? It was like, are these people going to figure stuff out and be less neurotic and you know, is she is she going to still have crying breakdowns every five minutes, you know, or is she going to find some peace in her life? And I liked that little slice of life aspect where this, again, the stakes were really low. And but that made it like you mentioned, it made it a little bit more, I think, relatable. I think this could be elongated out into a TV show because this was kind of some very basic slices of what it would have been like to be in that newsroom. And I do think that some of the writing is influenced by Brooks's time in television. Yeah, and I think he did, he actually based the Holly Hunter character on uh, a woman that he shadowed for this movie, I think. So, you know, there was a lot of, I guess, truth behind it. And I just find that I'm very fascinated by people doing their jobs, like things that I don't know much about. You know, you, you watch, the, there's those TV shows where it's like, you know, behind the scenes of someone who works in a sewer or something. And I'm just like, wow, I didn't even know that was a thing. And I had no idea what that would be like. And this is kind of like that. It feels very 
like you're getting, you know, a peek into the window of what it's like to be in this crazy pressure, high powered journalism field. And I, I found that interesting. Well, you have to remember too, that Brooks comes at this with some level of experience because he was instrumental in developing and producing uh, the Mary Tyler Moore show, which was about a newsroom. And so he took that, a lot of that aspect with the flawed characters and took some of the humor out of it and made it a little more realistic. And I think that that transcends into this somewhat and probably gave him the onus to write the script for this. Yeah, that's a good point. Well, before any of my other did you know section facts are uh, unfortunately taken from me, uh, let's get into the background of this movie a little bit. Dad, do you have our plot summary ready for us? I do. A highly strung and emotional news producer, Jane Craig, Holly Hunter, works for a network news office in Washington, D.C. When the network hires a great-looking but intellectually novice reporter, Tom Grunig, William Hurt, she finds herself conflicted between her attraction to him and her revulsion in his being the epitome of everything she hates about TV news, the mindless, unintelligent, pretty anchors of today. At the same time, Jane's friend and reporter, Aaron Altman, Albert Brooks, whose intelligence is overshadowed by his lack of TV presence, mars the situation with his conflicting feelings for her. Thank you. Cast for this movie, James L. Brooks, writer and director, William Hurt as Tom Grunick, Albert Brooks as Aaron Altman, Holly Hunter as Jane Craig, Robert Prosky as Ernie Merriman, Lois Childs as Jennifer Mack, Joan Cusack as Blair Lytton, Peter Hacks as Paul Moore, Christian Clemenson as Bobby, and Jack Nicholson as Bill Rorish. Recognition for this movie? Broadcast News was given a limited release on December 16, 1987, in seven theaters and managed to gross $197,000 on its opening weekend. It went into wide release in the United States on December 25, 1987, in 677 theaters, grossing $5.5 million on its true opening weekend. The film went on to make $51.3 million in North America and $16.1 million in the rest of the world for a worldwide total of $67.3 million. Broadcast News was placed on 61 10 best lists, making it the most acclaimed film of 1987. Broadcast News was nominated for Best Picture, Actor for William Hurt, Actress for Holly Hunter, Supporting Actor for Albert Brooks, Original Screenplay for James L. Brooks, Cinematography, and Film Editing. However, it won none of those awards. The film was recognized by the American Film Institute in the following lists. It was a nominated film for the 1998 AFI's 100 Years 100 Movies. It was a number 64 on AFI's 100 Years 100 Laughs list. It was nominated for the quote, I'll meet you at the place near the thing where we went that time in 2005 for AFI's 100 Years 100 Movie Quotes. And finally, in 2007, it was nominated for AFI's 100 Years 100 Movies 10th Anniversary Edition. Broadcast News currently holds a 98% rating among critics on Rotten Tomatoes, an 84 score on Metacritic, and a 4 out of 5 on Letterboxd. And in 2018, Broadcast News was selected for preservation by the Library of Congress. Did you know? Albert Brooks revealed that when he first read the script, the scene where Aaron does a weekend broadcast simply noted, something bad happens to Aaron on the air. Albert was watching CNN when a reporter he'd never seen before and hasn't seen since 
began sweating badly. Albert phoned writer and director James L. Brooks at three in the morning and stated that Aaron had to start sweating profusely. Did you know? Jack Nicholson was not paid for his role at his own request. Did you know? Peter Hacks, who played News Division President Paul Moore, was an NBC News correspondent in Washington, D.C. until retiring from the network a year before the movie was made. Did you know? Jane Craig was inspired by CBS News producer Susan Zarinsky. Before filming began, Holly Hunter spent time job shadowing Zarinsky to see how things worked in a real newsroom. Hunter also cut her hair into a Bob-style haircut to resemble Zarinsky. Did you know? James L. Brooks wrote this movie especially for Deborah Winger, but she was forced to turn it down because she was pregnant with her son, Noah Hutton. Before casting Holly Hunter as a replacement, Brooks considered Sigourney Weaver, Judy Davis, Elizabeth McGovern, Christine Lottie, and Elizabeth Perkins. Did you know? Mark Shaman and Glenn Rovin, who played news theme writers, are real-life composers who have also done TV jingles. Shaman, after doing this movie, went on to score major motion picture films and has since been nominated for seven Academy Awards. Did you know? Jennifer is sent to Anchorage, Alaska to report on bodies that had been found after being buried by a serial killer. It's a reference to the Robert Hansen case. Hansen would abduct women, sometimes flying them to remote locations in his plane, rape them, and hunt them. In 1983, he was convicted of 17 murders and sentenced to 461 years in prison with no possibility of parole. He died August 21, 2014. And with that, we will take our first break and we'll be right back. Before we jump back into the episode, next week we will be discussing the second in our journalism month with His Girl Friday from 1940, directed by Howard Hawks, written by Charles Lederer and Ben Hecht starring Cary Grant and Rosalind Russell. You won't want to miss that one, so watch ahead of the show by searching the Real Good app to find where it's streaming for you. That's R-E-E-L-G-O-O-D. All right, gentlemen, best performance. Shane, we can start with you. Who did you have down? I would give it to probably Holly Hunter in this. I think she's just doing a lot of heavy lifting here. There is everything from comedy to, you know, this neuro- these neurotic breakdowns that we talked about. She has numerous crying scenes. I don't know that she was my favorite character, but I think that she's the standout for me performance-wise. And I absolutely agree. I really don't have much to add other than I thought she was the most charismatic person, even though I didn't put her as most charismatic, the person that drew you in the most and probably the one that takes up the most oxygen in the room anytime that she's in a scene. She's clearly overshadowing Albert Brooks and William Hurt in this movie, and that's not something that you can usually do with just anybody. So no matter how it happened, the fact that she's in this movie and is able to perform, I think is the exact right thing that should have happened, because in somebody like Deborah Winger, I just don't think this movie is as good. Yeah, I think Deborah Winger was his first choice, wasn't it? For Correct. Uh, yeah. Dad, who did you have done? Well, I had Holly Hunter's second. And this is why, because having seen the film 35 years ago, 34 years ago, the scenes I remembered were always Albert Brooks led. There's just something about him that was so memorable because sometimes it was the character was just so over the top. You at times were rooting for him and other times you just wanted to slap him and say, you know, like, wake up. You're being an idiot. And 
that's the parts that I remembered. Him quitting and going to Portland, his comments that he constantly made to, to uh, Holly Hunter throughout the film, his snide little digs at uh, William Hurt. That's what I remembered. So that's why I gave him the best because to me, he had a part that had to be second fiddle to everyone else around him, but he made it his own and he made it extremely memorable that I could remember specifically things from it 34 years later. So if your best secondary then was Holly Hunter, mine was actually James L. Brooks. I think that the writing in this is actually fairly well done, particularly the dialogue, I think is top notch. It gave a lot for the actors to work with and didn't have to necessarily recreate the wheel every time that they were on screen. And so from my perspective, not only for the tone and we talked about the low stakes atmosphere of this movie, but I thought he created a very inviting atmosphere for you to look at what would be ordinary people for most professionals within this industry. Yeah, for second, probably not uh, a popular choice, but I was really, really impressed with as much as I like James L. Brooks or or, uh, Albert Brooks. I felt like it was a little bit one note. I felt like he was very much on 11 the entire time. And I remember really enjoying him the first couple times I'd seen this movie. I think he was because he's sort of the comedic relief in some in some sense. But I felt like he was just the neuroticism, almost this kind of like incel mentality that he had this time. Very like self-deprecating, but like self-abuse. It just it just was a little over the top for me. And it was it was it was a little harder for me to digest this time. And I was really impressed uh, on this viewing with William Hurt. I thought that it was a very nuanced performance. I thought that he was much more sympathetic than I had seen in the past that, you know, I'd always kind of thought he was. I, I think if I if you'd asked me to describe this movie after I'd seen it the first couple of times, I would have said that he was that he was kind of one note, that he was sort of boring in this movie. And on a second watch, I felt like he was doing a lot of work in here that I, I think I didn't notice the first time where he comes across as simultaneously very sort of charming. He knows he's good looking. He's very confident. He's very, you know, he's, he's very at peace with himself, but he's also very ambitious and, and he knows his faults. He knows that he is not as good as other people at this job and that he really wants to learn from them, that there is some genuine integrity in him that he wants to get better at what he's doing. And yet we know that ultimately He's willing to undermine all of that integrity by, you know, spoiler alert, doing doing some pretty horrible stuff, some manipulative things when it comes to journalism. So I just found that to be very fascinating, this this multifaceted, nuanced performance. And I thought he pulled it off incredibly well. And uh, I was just really way more impressed with him on this viewing than I had been in the past. So you said that it might not be popular, but I actually went in a similar direction. I nominated him for my most charismatic because I thought the first time I watched it, I couldn't understand what the whole like first couple of scenes when they're as children really had to do with the rest of the film. But the second viewing where you kind of know where the characters are going to go and they're sketched out, I think took on a more significant meaning for me. And so I actually was much more sympathetic of William Hurt's character because I've known those kids that they try very hard. They're very conscientious. They want to do well, but they kind of beat themselves up because they're just never going to be intellectually on the same level as everybody else. Where Aaron flaunts it, And 
is trying to make digs, you're never going to make more than $19,000 a year. And apparently that's not a bad thing to his bullies. To me, that just sounded that he just wanted to be mean for the sake of being mean to prove that he was better than everybody else. Whereas Tom seemed much more grounded and knew his limitations and his flaws, but was able to rise above them and also know while he had them that they were something he could work around. If he, if he gave it enough effort, he knew how to handle them and enhance himself despite his own flaws. And to me, that's the more reasonable character. Obviously, Aaron, to me, was an annoying character because he just couldn't get out of his own way most of the time. Yeah, I agree. And I also think that Tom is underrated, even even in the movie, even maybe in the script a little bit, we're not supposed to think, that, at least again on those first viewings, I think I assumed that I wasn't supposed to think that he was very competent and that he was kind of just getting by on his looks. But there is something in this most recent viewing where you realize like Tom is maybe savvier than anyone in this movie. He realized not only is he sort of willing to use his looks, but he he represents where the industry is going. And we're supposed to think that's a bad thing. But I think Tom, you know, it's not his fault that it's going that way. And if anything, he's just savvy enough to recognize that the future of journalism is a pretty face and a composed personality and someone who's able to inspire trust in the audience. And, uh, you know, he's anticipating the future of journalism, whereas the rest of them, for better or worse, are kind of clinging to the past. And I'm not saying, again, that that's a good thing. I don't like where the industry went. But Tom saw that that was going to happen. And I don't think we can blame Tom for what ended up happening within, you know, the, the people who got these jobs aren't necessarily the problem. It's the people who, as we said, it's more human nature that we want to see pretty people tell us things. But that's not Tom's fault. And I think Tom was actually much more savvy than we give him credit for. And yeah, I appreciated him more. And we'll I think we'll talk about it more when we talk about our favorite scenes, too. Well, and I think no bigger scene emphasizes that more for me than the sitting on your jacket scene. You can really see. So that's going to be one of my that was my favorite scene. That's why I said we'll talk about it in a minute. But yeah, go because that's exactly what I'm talking about. Like he that really shows that Tom actually there is method to his vacuousness, right? We think that it's vacuous, but he actually has put a lot of thought into what he does. Well, and add to that the following, which is the very last scene where he is standing in front of everybody and he basically admits, I'm not good with preparing the news and understanding and analyzing it and putting together the script that's supposed to be the news. That's why I'm going to give it to somebody else. I'm just going to be the anchor. And his awareness of that reveals something about his ultimate character, which is he understands his weaknesses. And so that, to me, was a redeeming quality for him. I had him as most charismatic for that reason, because he just seemed like every time you took a chance, got to a point where you didn't like him. And oh, how naive and and innocent we are when we're talking about faking a cry as being journalistic unintegrity. Yeah. At this point in time, if only we had a fake cry once in a while. Yeah, it is. It's funny to look back and think that that was his big crime back then, you know. Yes, all we have to do is say one word, Geraldo, and we'll go, yeah, that was pretty uh, lame, actually. And, and, And when you mentioned the kids scene, 
it reminded me of something I've thought, which is if you spend some time and watch a 10-year-old and how they interact and how they behave, if the kid is always feeling like they're put upon, talked down to, treated poorly, their whole life will be revolve around trying to overcome that and prove something. The Napoleon complex, where everybody kind of looks or talks down to you, you spend your whole life trying to strive for greater. If the kid is like the most popular kid in class, that's the person that's going to be the master salesman. That's going to be the guy who sells the most car insurance in the state of Iowa. You can tell a lot about what a child's adult life is going to be like about how they're behaving and interacting around the age of 10. Yeah, that's that's true. Another thing I think is interesting about the Tom dichotomy of him being sort of inept in a lot of ways, but also very savvy is that when there's that moment where he is getting in his ear, she's telling him, she's feeding him a bunch of information and he's having to kind of translate that and pretend that he's not getting it from his ear. You know, that's actually something that's really incredibly hard to do. And I think that that moment was in there partly also to show that there is something that Tom is really good at that maybe it's okay for some people to just be good at one thing. Like, I don't think that necessarily we have to have anchors who are also incredibly brilliant people. They just need to be good at delivering that information, reading from a teleprompter and having it come out and sound natural and having some, some of that gravitas. You know, that is a talent. That is something that not everyone has. And Tom being able to sort of take everything that was getting yelled into his ear and translate that as well as he did, you know, that that's something that maybe is, I think, a little bit undervalued as well. Maybe there's no way that the Albert Brooks character could have done that, as we see when he starts sweating like a maniac. It's not as easy as it seems to just be the mouthpiece for the news. We just think it's a talking head, but there actually is a lot of skill that comes. Honestly, if it were me, and it's one of the things that struck me, every time that I get multiple voices in my ear like that, you automatically have the reflex whoa, 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 slow down. And I would have reacted to whomever was talking to me like we're having a conversation instead of I have to keep talking into the camera because I'm actually having a different audience than the person that's talking to me. I just don't know how you can disassociate yourself between those two things. Or accidentally repeat what the person is saying in your ear, which is what I think I would have done. It's just, you know, whatever they were saying to me, I just would have started spouting. And uh, yes, to be able to kind of take that in and regurgitate it in a coherent way, that's, that's real, that's real skill. Well, it's, it's a skill set, definitely, which one person I know very well has referred to, I'm unsettlingly calm in crises. And that's part of the thing is to take information that's being thrown at you all at once, and being able to filter it, know what's important and be able to repeat it or say it. And that's why certain people are geared to certain professions. I think it's probably why I ended up becoming a lawyer because three people can throw things at me and I can filter them out and figure out what's important and not very quickly, especially if I'm in front of a jury. Shane, who did you have as your most charismatic? Yeah, I also had William Hurt too. So that's, uh, we all agree. All right. Consensus. So then let's go to best scenes. So these are the ones that I have nominated, and I'll let you add any more after uh, I have these nominees named here. So I actually kind of skipped over some of the first parts of the movie, even though I mentioned the kids scene. 
But Jane meets Tom. I have last second editing, which is that whole scramble where they're trying to finish the edit before they have to put the video on for uh, New York during its broadcast. Nicaragua, house party, which is the situation at the, the one Washington Bureau chief's house, which I think gets a lot more background on each of the individual characters, but also some of the supporting characters. Libya and Sicily. Do you know the cabinet? Sit on your jacket a little. Correspondence dinner. Layoffs, which is near the end of the movie there when Bill comes to the Washington office. Airport send-off. And then the epilogue, which is them all in the future. Did I miss any? No, I think that was a pretty comprehensive list. I hadn't even thought of a couple of those, but uh, a couple of those were definitely on my list. Yeah, I was surprised at how many I ended up nominating, but I just started to think about all the different small sections of this movie, and I didn't think there was one I could really factor out. So I would say, honestly, because we went to it again, Sit on Your Jacket a Little has a a different flair to me this time, and I think that might actually be the best scene, because it plays against the narratives you've been given up to that point in the movie. Even Aaron recognizes, oh, Tom's got a little something that he can actually give me as an eighth. He's not just a bag of hot wind. Yeah, 100%. That's exactly what I was going to say about that. It, it is a very interesting scene because it sort of twists the narrative. It's, you know, up until that point, in a lot of ways, we've been led to believe that Aaron, it's not everything that's happened to him isn't fair. He's not getting his due. And Tom is just kind of skating by on his looks. And that's the moment where you see, wait a minute, you know, there's a reason that maybe Aaron, as as one of you said, uh, just can't get out of his own way. And that Tom has something of value to offer that he kind of knows what he's doing. I would say that if I had to dominate a secondary one, it would probably be the Libya and Sicily show that they have to do just for some of the things that we've already been talking about him having to decipher all of the information as it's kind of being thrown. But you see how each character adds value to that one particular broadcast. And while our issues with Libya and Gaddafi are really dated in this day and age, given that I think he's been gone for what, 10 years at this point, it's still a situation where you could very easily see North Korea is lobbing missiles at Japan and all of a sudden somebody's got to come on the air and do that emergency broadcast type of situation. Yeah, I think the other one that I would have gone with would have been the frantic VHS editing fiasco because I sort of wish the movie had started with that. The kids' parts in this uh, viewing I didn't, they didn't work for me. I kind of felt like they, they felt very shoehorned in and, you know, the kid actors maybe weren't that great and the humor felt a little forced. And I sort of wanted to open with, I, I think that is such an encapsulation of her, just this frantic chaos that sort of surrounds her and yet she succeeds. She sort of keeps falling upwards because of how competent she is and just how good she is at her job. And that was just an encapsulation of that character And I wish that they had just started the movie right there instead of kind of with these sort of vignettes in the beginning that didn't work as well for me on this. The best scene and the, my favorite scene are kind of both a little unusual and that's the layoff scene. I've gone through that a couple of times in my life and that was so well done. There's the angst. You could feel the palpable fear that some people had even when you're told what's going to happen you still don't quite understand what's happening 
the the quote where he says, well, if you need anything, let me know. Well, I hope you die <laughs> or something to that effect. I mean, that just so epitomizes that whole situation. And it's always the same, which is, oh, I so respect you and and uh, we'll we'll keep in touch. And then you never hear from each other again. And you all move on with your lives. To me, that, that scene was so well done. It could have been so over the top, but wasn't. It was written beautifully. Somehow or another, they seem to have a great grasp of what it means to be involved in a mass layoff and have that uncertainty permeate through an organization. So to me, I just thought it was the best scene, and it's my favorite scene for that, simply because I thought it was so well done or so well choreographed and written. So we've all given our favorite scene at this point, so let's just skip right to most indelible moment. And I think for me, it was pretty obvious. It's the airport send-off and him with the tear, where you really get the final, you have to make a decision. Are you willing to live with the guy who has some questionable ethical decisions, or do you want to break this off in, in the name of doing your job to the best level that you think it is? Yeah, that's that's a good one. I would probably agree with that. I think that that when I think back at this movie, that is one of that's one of the moments that really stands out for sure. Well, when you when you mentioned the film, that's the immediate one I remembered was the tear. And I started thinking about it and I'm going a tear versus Al Capone's vault or some of the other great gaffes that we've had. It's become more poignant as time went by. It was just a simple thing. And at the time, it was defining for the film. And if only we could live again in those simpler times. But that's immediately what I thought of. So to me, that is obviously the most indelible moment because that's what I remembered the most. Yeah, I think that's probably what most people would take away from the film. I I do agree that it's really interesting that you know, this moment of one manufactured tear was supposed to be, it was such a big deal in that film. It was like, it represented all of journalistic, the undermining of journalistic integrity. And now, like you said, that is just, that's not even something, if you told me that an anchor did that, I, I don't think I'd even have a problem with it at this point. I would just say like, oh, well, are they, you know, are they not awful human beings in other ways? Then that's fine. I mean, with reality television, like everything is scripted, everything is fake you watch a reality TV show, if they're crying, you know that the producers spent five minutes showing them pictures of dead puppies so that they could get that reaction out of them. You know, we we know now, we're so much more cynical now than they were at that time. And we know what goes on behind the scenes. And we expect it. And I think we'd in some ways be disappointed if we didn't get it. And so, yeah, that that really does mark to me how much has changed in the interim and how right they were to point to a moment like that as being a big deal at the time because it was a slippery slope to the point we're at now where it's not a big deal, where that's the, the least of our worries is someone manufacturing a tear on, uh, on their broadcast. So that's a great note to end our second part here, and we'll take another quick break and be right back. Before we jump back into the episode, you can still sign up for our newsletter at thenewronnyduncanstudios.com. Find us on Instagram, Twitter, or now TikTok at the handle at Podcast, or find our new Facebook page under Greatest Movie of All Time Podcast. Dad, do we have anyone to remember this week? We do. 
Roger Welsh, 85, was an American television correspondent and author, humorist who did, was known as Captain Nebraska, produced the postcards from Nebraska segment of the CBS Sunday Morning News. Uh, I remember that going back, uh, I think it was even, may have been pre-Charles Kuralt's idea and may have even started Charles Kuralt's travels. Memory serves me. Yes, all of those segments were just notable for their rural, down-to-earth, basic Middle America type of values, and he wrote about a lot of things that appealed to Middle America. Al Primo, 87, American television news executive, creator of the term Eyewitness News for a local station in uh, Philadelphia in 1965, was a champion of early diversity hires in the newsroom as beat reporters. He also worked with ABC and was one of the early producers for Harry Reisner and the ABC News and set up kind of that whole program before he ultimately left there and uh, worked as a uh, consultant in various news divisions. As far as production of television news and how it's set up currently with correspondents at different locations, the notion of a White House correspondent for TV news was not really in place until he came up with it for his local Philadelphia station at the time. And since then, we've gotten a lot of different beat reporters, but he was very focused on making sure we had a diverse offering of different personalities that would handle different issues and items that were of the culture and really give back to the community in a way that other news producers to that point hadn't really been willing to go to. Joan Hotchkiss, 80, or a 95, American actress, playwright, screenwriter, feminist, performing artist. The Life and Times of Eddie Roberts. She was in The Odd Couple, My World, and Welcome to It. She was an early member of the Actors Studio. When I uh, looked at her and her career, I noted she uh, was one of those actresses that was like, oh, yeah, all right, I recognize her. I know what she's been in. But a longtime actor in television and in film that I had enjoyed, including The Odd Couple. We should differentiate between the play, the film version, and the TV version of The Odd Couple. She was in the 70s TV version as Oscar Madison's girlfriend of the time. But that was really her number one claim to wide fame as an actress. She spent most of her life after that as a playwright and screenwriter, mostly of feminist performing topics. And so she was a, a leader and a pioneer in that particular movement during the 70s. We also lost uh, Vincent Deporter, 63. He's a Belgian comic book artist and animator. He was in several of the TV and book productions from Marvel and then uh, ultimately migrated over and was one of the animators in of the comic book version of SpongeBob SquarePants, did some for the TV show as well. Interestingly enough, I didn't find much for him outside of some French publications that I didn't link in the article. So this is another one where I didn't actually find a English obituary to link to on our site. And then lastly, we lost three-time Grammy Award winner, source of Coal Miner's Daughter, the uh, biopic with Sissy Spacek. We lost Loretta Lynn, 90, American Hall of Fame country uh, singer, songwriter. 
she had written the song Coal Miner's Daughter and You Ain't Woman Enough to Take My Man, The Pill. 90 years old, she had a very long and successful career and had a lot of impact on country music and on, I think, to a large extent, society as a whole. There were a lot of uh, women, especially around the country, who had a tendency to look upon her with some level of admiration. She had a career. She was a mother. She was a wife. She had to put up with a lot. She came from nothing and built herself into a power broker within an industry. So I do want to specify that the movie itself that starred Sissy Spacek and where she won the Oscar for Best Actress in, I think, 1980, is actually based on her second autobiography of the same name, Coal Miner's Daughter. But one of the things that was recognizable from her obituary and some of the articles that I saw about her was just her influence on women within country music and how much she was a pioneer in moving for there to be even a place for women in country music that was songs or music for and about them. And she was unafraid to write about her own situation, be appealing to women that were from middle America as well, in a way that hadn't really been appealed to before that time. Well, yeah. And I can honestly say, I mean, I grew up listening to a lot of this music, Loretta Lynn, Tammy Wynette, Kitty Wells. If but for that, some of those women in the late 50s or and throughout the 60s, early 70s, there would not be the significant level of female entertainers that are in not just country music, but crossover and in gospel and in rock, et cetera. I think that they had a very significant influence and, and showed the opportunities to women that they could break into what had previously been a man's world. And so we recognize these figures for all their contributions to the arts here with a moment of silence in their honor. Thank you. All right, let's go to best slash funniest lines. First one I have up, Paul. It must be nice to always believe you know better, to always think you're the smartest person in the room. Jane. No, it's awful. That I think we probably all had that on our list. I think that is the that is like the defining quote of the movie. Uh, and it's one that I think sticks with most people. Like that's just such great writing. I mean, you talked about kind of like it's almost Aaron Sorkin-esque writing in this movie. And that is the best line in the movie for me. Tom, what do you do when your real life exceeds your dreams? Aaron, keep it to yourself. Shane, what do you have? Boy, I had a few. Most of them were the Aaron Altman character because I feel like he he gets a lot of the best writing in here. There's the famous line where he just says, okay, I'll meet you at the place near the thing where we went that time. Where the the woman says, uh, you think anyone who's proud of the work we do is an ass kisser? And he says, no, I think anyone who puckers up their lips and presses it against their boss's buttocks and then smooches is an ass kisser. <laughs> yeah. Well, I loved the part after it, though, too, on top of it. And here I was just about to think you were attractive. <laughs> And yeah. even then he can't help himself. Oh, that would have changed everything. <laughs> I like, I know you care about him. I've never seen you like this about anyone. So please don't take this wrong when I tell you that I believe Tom, while a very nice guy, is the devil. 
The only reason I didn't nominate that one is I think for context, you have to almost give all the other parts of that somewhat almost a monologue. Oh, yeah. Yeah. The what do you think the devil is going to look like thing? Yeah, exactly. Next one I had down Paul. Paul and Martin emerged from an office in which Paul had just laid off Martin. Now, if there's anything I can do for you, Martin. Well, I certainly hope you'll die soon. Aaron, wouldn't this be a great world if insecurity and desperation made us more attractive? If needy were a turn on? Certainly it would help me out. (laughs) (laughs) Did you have another one, Shane? Yeah, another Aaron Altman line. He said, uh, and if things had gone differently for me tonight, then I probably wouldn't be saying any of this. I grant you everything, but give me this. He personifies everything that you've been fighting against, and I'm in love with you. How do you like that? I buried the lead. My next one, Blair Litton. Except for socially, you're my role model. Tom, just remember, you're not just reading the news. You're narrating it. Everybody has to sell a little. You're selling them this idea of you, you know, you're sort of saying, trust me, I'm uh, credible. So when you feel yourself just reading, stop, start selling a little. I think that was all the ones that I had. Okay. Aaron, if anything happens to me, you tell every woman I've ever gone out with I was talking about her at the end. That way they'll have to reevaluate me. Aaron, he'll be attractive. You'll be nice and helpful. He'll get a job where he influences a great God-fearing nation. He'll never do an evil thing. He'll never deliberately hurt a thing. He'll just bit by bit lower our standards where they are important. Just a tiny bit. Just coaxing along. Flash over substance. Just a tiny bit. And we'll talk about all of us really being salesmen. And he'll get all the great women. That was the, what do you think the devil's going to look like? That was the rest of it, yeah. Dad, this is like a conversation you and I could have had. Tom, (laughs) I'm going to miss you. You're a prick in a good way. I'm sorry. No, I liked how that made me sound. I couldn't find any quotes, but I'm just going to comment because I should have mentioned this during our uh, best performances. Robert Protsky had such a great run of television and film in the 80s. It's overwhelming. I couldn't find a good quote he had, but every time he opened his mouth, he said something that was like, oh, yeah, okay, I got that. And he just really portrayed a great character in and of himself. Did you have any other quotes yet, Dad? No. All right, so I have one last one. Aaron, let's never forget, we're the real story, not them. That could also be tied for line of the movie. Yeah, that's a good one. All right, let's go to the Stanley rubric then. Legacy is up first. Dad, do you want to lead us off? Sure. The fact that this has gotten recognized and preserved and all that says that a lot of people think that this movie in the industry still has legs. But it's not a film even in the industry that's held up in huge regard and is talked about and is compared and held as a standard for other films about television, the news, society, etc. So I had a hard time giving it major things because we divide between industry and public. So I gave it a 3.5 for the industry because 
I think some regard it as classic, but not as not as much as other films or as much as it could have been considering some of the acclaim that it got at the time. The public, unfortunately, I I think most people forgot about this film. I, I know that for some extent I forgot about this film, and I consider myself pretty knowledgeable on film and film history. I'm sorry I forgot the film. Having watched it again, I really enjoyed it and thought it was a great film and wish I would have thought about it or seen it more often than I did. But for the public, I gave it a two. So I went with 5.5 for Legacy because for whatever reason, it's just never been able to hold the momentum it established when it was originally released. All right, as for me, I agree with a lot of your points, Dad. I think I have a little bit higher in the industry. I wouldn't say that it's among like the top 100 greatest American films, but it's probably in the top 200. And somewhere in that second hundred, I think there's an appreciation for it from the industry, both as an influence on the state of journalism, but also on all three of these careers. And so from that standpoint, I gave it a 4.5. For the audience, I also agree The fact that I hadn't really heard of this film or been properly introduced before the last like year and a half, and I consider myself a movie person, is a little bit telling to me that this just has not had the staying power among the general population as far as an influential movie or something that lives among us in the same way that a lot of the other films we've discussed on this show have. Even some rather insignificant films have a lot more staying power than this. So I just don't think this is appealable to the general population. So I actually went with a 1.5. I ended at a 6. Shane, what did you have? You know, I I agree with pretty much everything both of you said. I would probably give it a little bit more credit within the industry uh, just because not even so much the connection to journalism, but just the what it is as a film, as kind of a behind-the-scenes, a fast-paced film about a fast-paced industry. And that sort of had, you know, we talked about Aaron Sorkin and everything Aaron Sorkin has done from, you know, West Winger, the, the uh, what's the Facebook movie? And, and, oh, The um, Social Network? Social Network and the uh, the one that he did with The Newsroom. All of that, you know, you can kind of trace to this style of, of film. And I think that it's it did have a little bit of, of maybe more of an impact than people even understand or would give it credit for. But I think that over time, it's been eclipsed by a lot of other films. You guys are doing some uh, journalism films coming up that definitely had a bigger impact on the industry as a whole. Um, but I would probably go with like a five for the legacy within the industry. And then as far as the public perception, I would go maybe even lower because I 100% agree that it just, it's not that it hasn't held up well, it just hasn't resonated. There hasn't been, you know, it's just not mentioned in the in the pantheon of great films anymore. And so I would put down that down to like a three. And especially within the journalism circles, I think that something like the West Wing is held up by a lot of politicians and their staffs and people who work in politics as being the highest level of what politics could be. But this movie is not held by that as journalists. They, in fact, held uh, All the President's Men as like their big movie that they always go back to. And so by extension, I think this one just kind of has fallen up by the wayside as far as 
recognition or films that people mention about journalism because it doesn't have the stakes that we're supposed to come to feel about journalism in the same way. I, I will, after listening to both of your arguments, adjust my industry score up from three and a half to four. So I'll have a six total because I think now that you've mentioned it, I think it had a very impactful legacy for both Holly Hunter and for William Hurt that I didn't really take into account. That's a good point. Yeah. So that's a six for all of us, right? Yes. Do you need help with the math? No, the average is a six. Okay, good. We're good to go then. Very simple. Impact significance, much along the same lines, just a little bit different time frame. Simply put, I think at the time, industry-wise, given the amount of top 10 lists that this was on, that it did okay commercially, but it was nominated for a lot of Oscars, even though it didn't win. And given the stature that James L. Brooks at the time had within the industry and how much it promoted its three stars into doing pretty much whatever they wanted for the next five or six years, even to the point of a few of them getting their own Oscars. Well, I guess William Hurt's Oscar came before this. But even so, I do think that this had probably a max impact as far as in the immediate sense. But from an audience standpoint, we look at some of the box office numbers. They were kind of middling. The fact that this wasn't the the film that really carried it in a day and age when If you had enough of a box office, it could have carried you to a Best Picture win. It didn't seem that this was a big enough movie to push it past the edge. And I think this was the year that The Last Emperor won. So if it couldn't beat out that for like the highest box office or most recognition, I just don't know how much it had at the time. So I went with a two and a half. I ended at a 7.5 overall. First of all, The Last Emperor was the last Emperor film I ever wanted to see. Boring. It. I saw it at the time. That was one that my dad took me to, and that was a long movie. <sighs> we are going to get to it eventually on the show, Dad. Yeah, I know. I better take no dose, along with some coffee while I'm doing it. Maybe a Red Bull. Anyway, and I say that having read court decisions all day, impact and significance. The critics love the film. For the most part, there were a few criticisms about it being just an extended vision. I think Roger Ebert said it was an extended vision of Brooks's television work. I think he was the most negative. Uh, If I remember right, I read Siskel. Siskel loved it. Those were the most influential at the time because, I mean, I always watched them every week to keep track of what was going on in the industry since I couldn't actually go because I had... I had two nickels to rub together, I was doing well. So I went with a 4.5 for the industry because I think the industry really used this film. I mean, but for this film, Albert Brooks doesn't do one of my most famous scenes of all time is Albert Brooks dying in Private Benjamin. I I remember when his parents asked what his last thing he said was, and I just fell off the chair. <laughs> now, we'll do that another time uh, because I don't want you to have to give a, a, a NC-17 rating right now. But uh, uh, So I, I think that adds some more significance for the industry as far as all three actors going on. 
for the public, I, I went with 3.5. It was impactful. This was a film that I think that in retrospect, you could always tell which films had some legs among the general public at VHS because you'd go to the video store. And if they had seven copies, then you knew the film was popular for rental. And I, if I remember right, this is one of those films that I think every couple rented because there was enough of a love interest and such in this that uh, it had some legs with the public. So I had 3.5 for that. So I went with an 8 for the total. And are, so just to clarify, we're splitting it into... The impact significance is just kind of legacy, but in the near term. So the initial five years after its release. So for impact and significance within the short-term period, within that first five years, as you mentioned, I mean, this was a really well-reviewed movie and it was up for a ton of Oscars, didn't win any, but I mean, it was it was lauded at the time. I don't think that it is given as much credit now as maybe, I don't know, I'm not going to say as much as it deserves because I think that it, it may have been a little overhyped at the time but it, it was a big a big film uh, from a critical standpoint. So I would probably give it a six uh, as far as the impact or significance in a short term. And then as far as just the the, the people, I guess, and, and sort of how it's regarded now, is that, is that the second part of it? Yeah, so I would say that you max out at a five. We usually divide it five and five the same way we do Legacy. Oh, I see. Okay, so then I would give it... so then I guess I would give it probably a four for the impact or significance in the first five years. And then after that, I mean, again, it just really went downhill. I think that this movie is somewhat well-regarded among critics who look back with rose-colored glasses. But I think that also if you ask them to write down you know, the, their top movies of the 80s, it wouldn't even be in there. I think you have to remind people that this movie exists in a lot of ways. And so I'd give it probably a two for a total of six. So that's a 7.17 average between the three of us. Novelty. Dad, do you want to take this one first? It was novel in, in it presenting it more about the individuals within a newsroom and being less about a specific issue. But to some extent, I mean, you can look at the film from, was it 76? network and see that that was more over the top of where things were going. At the time network came out, everybody thought it was just a complete farce. And at the time uh, broadcast news came out, most people saw that this was poignant and right on point and happening. I find it interesting that 35 years later, network is more poignant as to where news is than broadcast news. So I had to give it points down as far as novelty for that reason. So I, I went with a 7.5. It was unique in how it was presented. It was very entertaining and clean and clear, and you could enjoy the individuals. But because it kind of lost steam to a, another film along the same lines but different, I had to give it points down for that. I would agree. I think you actually sort of convinced me to revise my view on it a little bit because I, I think that's a good point that Network does significantly before this movie came out kind of tread the same territory in a more 
in a more poignant way. Uh, this movie is a little bit milk toast. You know, it's a little bit kind of it, it's just kind of a pleasant movie to watch. It's interesting. It can spark dialogues, but it's not an overwhelmingly uh, original or unique film. And maybe that's with, you know, the benefit of looking at it in hindsight. And so many, like we said, so, you know, Aaron Sorkin's done it a million times kind of better since then. But yeah, I don't I don't think it was even at the time that it was particularly groundbreaking. And so I'd probably go with with a six. I think I was originally planning to go on an eight and I, too, would have to revise my score because I guess I hadn't considered network by a comparison point. I think this does set a very unique tone within journalism movies and the fact that it's more about the people than the subject that they're covering the low stakes atmosphere. There just are not many movies like this. And for all the other movies that we have, again, with the exception being his girl Friday, which I think it's much more of a comedy about the people that are covering things. And it's less a journalism quote unquote movie other than a movie that involved journalists. I, I think that's a distinction to make about that particular film. And we're obviously going to get to that next week. This is unlike most of the other major journalism films that are held up. So I think it has to have some points, but if it's sole purpose, other than being a little bit entertaining and just giving you some character profiles on some people that are in the industry, which I think it does a very good job of without necessarily being a biopic. I do think that, Network is a little bit more of a biting criticism of the industry in a way that this is not. But I think that's the difference between the point that James L. Brooks was trying to do where he's taking a almost what I would say micro sociological level look at a couple of people within a, a particular industry as opposed to the macro level view that Patty Chayefsky was taking with Network and writing that. And so I think they are somewhat opposed, even though they're somewhat commenting on some of the similar things. So I will actually go a seven on that. So that's a 6.83 average between the three of us. Classicness, Dad, this is your category. I, I'm watching this film and I take a pause because every once in a while I'll just stop a film, especially when we're reviewing it, and just kind of sit for a moment and ponder it. Or I'll watch it in segments and take some time to let it digest. And I could just see this visual of your mother, who's the office manager, and her assistant, Linda, who's in charge of HR, just having an absolute come apart about the affairs going on within the office and how this is not appropriate. We can't allow this because it disrupts the order of where we're doing things. And I'm going, what place. I mean, right now we're going to have the head coach of the Boston Celtics terminated and out of work for, you know, they're not going to just suspend him. They're terminating him for a workplace affair with one of the other employees. You're sensationalizing a little. Right now he is suspended for the year. Let's tone it back a little bit. Not what I'm reading. But anyway, so I, I that's where it fell in. There's not much else that's completely wrong. We have strong, powerful women. I will point out something that uh, was not uncommon in 1987, and that's the lack of diversity. I mean, we saw no Hispanics. We saw no Native Americans. There definitely were no African Americans. There was an African American correspondent. Uh, 
George or yeah, I think his name was George. Okay. The fact that most of us can't remember is yeah. shows that I think it wasn't a pivotal role exactly. But that's that's the way television news was at that time because the networks were afraid of offending of offending sympathies within a certain region of the United States. Again, let's carefully tread as opposed to making too general of statements. Okay. So I went with an eight. I gave it points down, but I think it overall, just the fact that we had a extremely strong female character and it seemed to empower women generally, I couldn't give it down too much because I think that in and of itself at the time was significant. So I went with an eight. In fact, I'm going to change it just from, I convinced myself to give it an 8.5 simply because Holly Hunter was a badass in this. I would, yeah, I'm not a hundred percent sold on that. I think that she was a badass at her job. Uh, she was also breaking down in tears, you know, every five minutes in this movie and was very neurotic. And so I, I don't know. I mean, I do think that it, I think that it holds up pretty well. I don't think, you know, I, I especially as, a moment in time. I think that if you tried to transpose this movie to a modern journalism environment, obviously it wouldn't make sense. But for what it was at the time, it just it, it it's like a snapshot of the 1980s in a journalism uh, environment in a in a newsroom. And so I think that for those reasons it it does hold up well and I do agree that her character is smart, she's scrappy, she's you know, Holly Hunter just as a force just has that charisma and that energy. She always projects that strength and vulnerability too. So yeah, I, I do think it holds up pretty well for what it is. Again, I don't think that if you remade it now, it wouldn't make sense the way it was. But for for what it is, it does hold up. And so I'd probably give it 7.5. So I will say that once again, Dad, you have a little bit of influence on my score and have me readjusting slightly. But I'll make a couple of other points that I think make this a little less poignant. And we've kind of been dancing around it, but we haven't really tried to hit the the nail on the head here. So this is a movie that, like a couple of others, technology is somewhat front and center when we're looking at the cameras, the way that TVs were viewed at the time, where news was available, VHS tapes being there for the editing, how they would record stuff. And so when technology is that front and center, it does date the movie quite a bit for me in the same way that when you have like rotary phones as opposed to like cell phones of the modern era or smartphones, or you have flip phones of the time, it just, it takes me out of the movie for a second. And I'm like, oh yeah, we once had that. And that's now a museum piece. <laughs> Oh, wow. It's it's always going to do that. I'm going to recognize the tech and kind of it feels of an era as opposed to something that just ages in the same way. The other thing that I think makes this a little bit obsolete is just the way in which we now consume news. Other than a certain portion of the population in a particular age group that I think would skew older, how many people are still getting their news from a network news program nightly? There's a certain demographic, sure, but by my age group, we're probably getting the majority of our stuff from the internet 
or more specifically, Twitter, Facebook, Reddit, etc., more than we ever will from a particular anchorman. And so I think, again, if to take Shane's point, if this were redone today for how we would currently do broadcast news, it'd be something closer to what Joe Rogan's program is than it is, you know, this type of scenario. And I think that it does date the movie a little bit. That being said, I agree that Holly Hunter's character, at least for the time, was very progressive. And while there were certainly women leading newsrooms, it didn't quite have the same gravitas that she seems to have in the movie where everybody seems to recognize how generally good she is at her job, even when she herself is just falling apart. So I'll repeat another piece from I I mentioned earlier in the show as well. If this were made in the current journalism climate of today, would there be people like Jane or Aaron who cared this much for the ethics of journalism? I don't know the answer to that question. I don't think either of you do as well. So there are just things about this movie that make me question and wonder why. I think the criticism is still accurate and apt. And the one other point that I'll give this is, is they gave credence and attention to a subject like date rape in a way that I think that we didn't really pay attention to or give enough credit for, for probably another 30 years. We've only kind of really started to deal with it again in the last maybe five to 10 years in a way that really grappled with the issue. Whereas this thing was putting it front and center, despite Tom's actions, which I do think undercut some of the poignancy of that particular topic. So I know I'm kind of batting it back and forth, and originally I was going to go with a six, but on the backing of Holly Hunter's character, I'll go with a seven. So that's a 7.67 average between the three of us. Rewatchability. Let's start with you, Shane. This is a tough one for me because there are a lot of things that I liked about this movie. There are some things that I didn't expect to like and that I would actually kind of, especially after having this conversation, might want to go back and watch it at some point. One of the things that I really enjoyed about this movie is how nothing really happens. Like, if you think about the arc of this movie, there's almost no arc at all. Like no one, no one gets the girl. No one really wins or loses. They just kind of move on with their lives separately. And that's not something that you see nowadays. I don't think that would get green lit. Like someone has to get married, get, you know, divorced. Someone's got to cheat on someone. Someone has to, and kind of nothing happens. Like there's no real romance that is seen to fruition in this movie, there's no there's no bad guys, really. There's no good guys. It just is a slice of life movie. And I find that sort of appealing and fascinating now. And I really enjoy the characters, even though a couple of them get on my nerves. I find them to be compelling characters. And so as much as this movie didn't super move me on this rewatch, it wasn't something that, you know, I think is going to be one of my top 100 movies I do find it weirdly compelling. It's a, it's a movie that I just, especially for the performances as well, you know, Holly Hunter and William Hurt being in the same film, kind of working off each other. And then Albert Brooks is this sort of crazy manic presence. It all just kind of is appealing, even if the movie itself is not really satisfying in a lot of ways. There aren't, there isn't a lot of closure there or, you know, great victories or, or losses. So I'm, I guess that's a long-winded way of saying that I, I found this more 
rewatchable than I sort of would have anticipated, and I'd probably give it like a seven. Dad? I usually start with a six, and that's kind of my defining moment as to whether I rewatch. And actually, this is a film that the whole family can watch for the most part. I know that it has a restricted element because there's the one scene where it gets a little risque, but for the most part, it's not overly offensive. And I would I would give it a bump up because I think it's worth watching and it tends to be kind of a period piece as to somewhat the innocence and yet the realization that we understood what was going to ultimately happen. So I went with a 7.5 for that reason because I can see in the next year, 18 months, having an argument where a bunch of us are sitting around and possibly your grandmother being at the house for that time. And we decide to watch a movie and this be something that we could kind of settle on. So I come down almost verbatim in the same camp that Shane does. I found this more compelling than probably the first time that I watched it. I was more confused on the first viewing, but now that I kind of knew the outline of where everything was heading, I could focus more in on the individual characters. And I think this is a character study movie as opposed to a plot heavy movie, because I would agree there really isn't any major action and the characters don't have any catharsis of anything by the end of the movie, other than Holly Hunter makes a choice, her ethics and what she believes about journalism over the potential relationship she could have had with somebody else that would have changed her potential values. That's really the only main stake in the overall of the movie is this kind of love triangle, which is kind of like a uh, more of a TV thing of the time as opposed to something that you would have necessarily seen in a lot of movies. So I ended up at a seven as well. That is a 7.17 average between the three of us. Audience score, we had a 79 for Rotten Tomato users and a 79 for Google users for a 7.9 overall. So to repeat the categories, we had a 6 for Legacy, a 7.17 for Impact Significance, a 6.83 for Novelty, a 7.67 for Classicness, a 7.17 for Rewatchability, and a 7.9 for Audience Score, giving us a final total of 42.74. And that would currently place it on our list between Shadow of a Doubt and Silver Linings Playbook. Hmm. Hmm. Always interesting to see what movies fall in between other movies because they're always completely different genres, and it's the fun of doing this show. Completely unconnected. All right, remaining questions. Shane, I'll let you go first here. Do you have any? I mean, I guess with this movie, I kind of wonder where they ended up you do see i think it's seven is it seven years later that they get together at the I end think somewhere between five or seven yeah it's yeah. just a slight flash forward it's not like a full decade i think you know the only question that i would sort of wonder is where they ended up as journalism marched inexorably toward what it is now right because she and the albert character they clung so tightly to this journalistic integrity and now we see what journalism has become. And I'm interested to know, you know, does that drive them out of the industry or did they change with the times? Did they have to sort of give up on some of these, these really, really strong, strongly held convictions that they had in order to stay in the industry? Or 
10 years after that, do we see them, you know, in a completely different industry because it kind of, they, they saw the way that it was going. And, you know, maybe it seems like Tom probably was the best equipped for success going forward, uh, knowing what journalism was going to become. But I guess that's the question I would have is sort of, you know, where did Jane and Albert end up? Did they, were they able to stick it out? Did they, you know, go into some kind of indie <laughs> news media? How, how did that work out for them? Well, I think the two things that immediately come to mind as far as changes in journalism is they're just on the dawn of major 24-hour-a-day news networks. So the CNN push, I think that would be interesting to see where they progress through that. And the other one being the internet, because the internet's probably the thing that's changed the world most since maybe the printing press. Yeah, absolutely. And that's, uh, that, that's, I'm curious about that. You know, those two characters, the way they were and, and these convictions that they had, how would they have adapted or would they have adapted? Dad, did you have any remaining questions? Yes, uh, five or seven years earlier, Holly Hunter wants absolutely nothing to do with William Hurt's character because of ethics. And yet, five or seven years later, she's willing to take and work with him on a daily basis, knowing that he has a problem with ethics. I mean, where do you come across being able to justify having such a strong position and then I don't know, dissipating that strong conviction so that you could work with him five or seven years later, it just didn't make any sense. There was nothing that indicated that she compromised her position or that she had a change of heart or anything that would say, well, yeah, well, now I'll go ahead and take the job working with you. So you feel it wasn't earned? Well, no, because it just didn't, to me, it didn't make any sense. It would have made more sense if she would have just said, no, for the same reason I didn't want to go away with you to the Caribbean, I don't want to work with you now. Where where in there did it come across that she changed or he changed or something changed that would allow this very vitriol expression of ethics to now dissipate to a point where, eh, whatever, I found that actually sort of believable because I feel like we all have these, you know, I, I went through a time when I was very like politically active as when I was in college and and even toward the end of high school. And I think you go through a period of time where you sort of have to reckon with the realities of the things that you thought were possible and were the right thing to do with the realities of what actually makes sense in the world. And she was very vitriolic in the beginning about her beliefs. And I think that over time, most of us kind of, you know, those rough edges are worn away a little bit and we have to make compromises. We realize the importance of making compromises in life. And maybe over time, she had realized that Tom was not evil for what he had done and that what he was doing was kind of the standard going forward and that she was willing to kind of compromise partly compromise her integrity, but also sort of compromise this unyielding viewpoint that she had had for, for so many years. That's how I like to think about it. But, you know, who knows? I'll take an even simpler view of this potentially. You know, all those people that might have picked on you in high school and you see them again, and some people just hold on to that forever. But I have a viewpoint where enough time has dissipated that you're not nearly as angry as you used to be. 
And so maybe you'll give them the benefit of the doubt that they could have changed or done something different. I'm thinking that if there's a good period of time where she really has not had any contact with him and he's still successful, that she wants to give him the benefit of the doubt to prove whether he's still that person that would do that manipulative of a thing or if he's kind of modified and kind of come around to her way of thinking. And so you're only going to know by being able to take the job and seeing where he's at. Yeah, it could be. That's, uh, you know, all valid uh, possibilities. So one of the parts that really struck me during the first viewing of the movie, and I think I could kind of make a rational argument or at least a, a narrative as to why this happens, but it just seems so out of place when I first saw the movie. And it's why is Jane constantly breaking down and sobbing for like the first half of the movie? She just does it openly, either in the office or in her hotel room or wherever. And I I didn't quite understand why she just needs to get this out for a moment. And then she seems fine and she goes right back to whatever she was doing. It just seems odd to me, but maybe I'm the outlier. I'll address it. Foo Fighters does a song called Superman, where it talks about all this is put upon me and I didn't ask for this and what. Okay, that's what's going on. She she has to portray an image of being indestructible, this strong person who is able to confront every adversity. And yet in her moments, she just gets to the point where all of the emotions that she was burying have to come out somehow or she's not going to be mentally healthy enough to continue. So she just decides... I'm going to just cry and let it all out. It it makes perfect sense to me. I almost, in retrospect, wish there were times that I had thought of this and said, you know, maybe that's the best way of dealing with some of the stress. Just a quick correction on that. It's five for fighting, not Foo Fighters. Oh, excuse me. Five for fighting, yes. That's an interesting interpretation. I I think that, that may be the case. The way that I had kind of interpreted it with her breakdowns were that she has a lot that she's not dealing with in her life and she's so focused on her career the reason that she's kind of myopically obsessively focused on journalism and integrity and holding on to these things is because the rest of her life is kind of falling apart and she's not dealing with it and she's instead pouring everything she has into her work and it really felt like in some ways this movie has a lot to say about having an unhealthy relationship with work. And I felt like she was uh, almost in an abusive relationship with her job and she wasn't willing to sort of let it go and give herself some time to like work through her own stuff. She would just give herself these few moments a day where she would pour it all out in a breakdown and then it was go back to the grind. And so I think that, you know, that was how I looked at it was that these are people who haven't really figured out a work-life balance and have a lot of stuff that they need to work on in their personal lives, at least her and Albert, and that maybe it's a good idea for us to all take a deep breath and realize that, you know, at the end of the day, your job isn't necessarily the most important thing that you're ever going to deal with in life. And I think that that's something that after the seven years, she may have also gained a little bit of perspective on by maybe having other relationships. And I don't know, did she have kids at that point? No. But, you know, it just seems like maybe she's 
getting a, a better sense of where to fit her job into her life as opposed to having her job be her life. You make a good point, Shane. I must have been about 20 years ago. I just kind of did this study of what makes greatness. So I read three biographies in a row. I read a biography of Douglas MacArthur, Groucho Marx, and Vince Lombardi consecutively. (laughs) These are three people that you would think have absolutely nothing in common. But yet you look back and they have a lot in common, which is they are so focused on one thing, the rest of their lives are a pile of stinking shit. And so I came to the conclusion that sometimes people who achieve ultimate greatness in one field just do it at the sacrifice of everything else in their lives. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And so my only other question I have is, and we've kind of danced around this, may have answered it, and this might be a little bit of rehash, but... What exactly is wrong with Tom's approach to journalism? Is it really Aaron's speech that little by little we sacrifice more of our morals with every exploitative or manipulative thing that is done to emphasize or what's the word? Sensationalize the news. There it is. I guess I'm struggling more in the second viewing. In the first one, I would agree. Tom is the villain. He's the clear guy that you're oh, this is what's wrong with journalism. But second viewing, I give him much more of a break. And so what exactly is wrong with Tom's journalistic point of view? I think the obvious answer for that, you know, the the moment, the villain moment that he has where we see that he's manufactured the tear, I think that it's not even the deceptiveness. What I think is wrong with it is, is that it makes him the story and the kind of the victim as opposed to this woman who was date raped. Like it takes the spotlight off her and puts it on him for a self-serving reason. It's to, to make him suddenly part of the story. And he's not part of that story. He doesn't, he, he should be irrelevant in a story about date rape. And yet he's inserting himself into the narrative as a main character with this tear. Right. And I think that that is, that's what's so objectionable about it. But I think that, like you said, on a second viewing, you know, that's kind of also what you need, what we expect. Like the viewer needs to feel validated as well. Like, you know, if you're just, uh, if you're an impassive questioner and you're asking someone about date rape and all you do is sit there and in a monotone, ask them questions and you're not reacting and you don't see anything from the the newscaster or the the interviewer, that's very hard to identify with and it feels off. It feels tonally weird. And so I think that you're right in some, in some ways, like they're presenting, you know, a a newscast or, or, you know, like a 60 minutes or something like that. They're presenting a story and they are part of the story. The, The interviewer in that case is part of the story. And that's something that we've accepted. And I think does make sense in a more media savvy and entertainment oriented society. And so I totally agree with you. I think that on a first viewing, that's the problem. And it's still a little bit, you know, Tom inserting himself in the story is a little bit of a problem. But on a second viewing, it's like, but that is what we expect. If we didn't see some reaction from him, we would almost blame him. We'd be like, well, this guy's a real jerk. Or we'd feel weird. Like, am I not supposed to be feeling anything right now? And so Tom, in some ways, is kind of validating us with this performative fake tear. But it it works for the story. It, it, It kind of needed that for the story. 
again, I go back to how naive we were then compared to now. How many people are reporters who make themselves the story themselves and are the talking heads on one of the three 24-hour news networks or one of the network news programs where they're on there talking about this or that and they're a, a CNN or Fox News or MSNBC contributor. And it's not just the news they're reporting, it's their opinion because they know the lucrative nature of that. The fact that they can make lots of money from the network, they can make lots of money from being a celebrity and they love the prestige of it. And now we're talking about Tom faking a tear and think, oh, this is so horrible. I don't know. We've lost a lot. Well, thank you, gentlemen. That was a great and rich discussion. Thank you to our guest, Shane. Where can people find more of your work? So as I go back to comedy post-pandemic now, the clubs are finally starting to reopen, and uh, that's been fun. Right now, I'm just kind of doing a lot of little local shows, but I will start doing more uh, out of town, and those will be on shanerogers.net. I always have my schedule up there. And then the best place is Midnight Facts for Insomniacs. It's a great, fun podcast of fascinating facts. We cover a little bit of everything, and uh, all the topics are chosen by our listeners in our Discord and so we just did uh, the history and evolution of punk rock. We've done pirates and UFOs and cults, all kinds of fun stuff. So there's a little bit of something for everyone there. And I definitely recommend it. Excellent. And again, thank you for being on. We enjoyed having you. Dad, any final thoughts for the week? Uh, no, actually, just kind of looking forward to a couple of the movies this month and uh, should be fun. I don't know if I've suggested a particular show it was suggested to me from a couple of media types, but I've been watching and I think I'm almost done with the show Bad Sisters on Apple TV+. Plus. So I think that's worth checking out. It's got some very good small humor, but the villain of the show, the brother-in-law, has to be one of the worst people in the history of television. And so if, if nothing else than to root against him, I would suggest this show. That'll do it for us this week. Thank you for listening. Thanks, guys. Thank you. Where are you headed, cowboy? Nowhere special? Nowhere special. I always wanted to go there. Next week, we will be discussing the second film in our journalism month with His Girl Friday from 1940, directed by Howard Hawks, written by Charles Lederer and Ben Hecht, starring Cary Grant and Rosalind Russell. You won't want to miss that one, so watch ahead of the show by searching the Real Good app to find where it's streaming for you. That's R-E-E-L-G-O-O-D. Please like, follow, rate, and review, or whatever on whichever platform you have so that you can join in on our fun. You can also email the show at thenewronnyduncanstudios.com or sign up for our newsletter. Find our new Facebook page under Greatest Movie of All Time Podcast, or find us on Instagram, Twitter, or now TikTok at the handle at Podcast. Greatest Movie of All Time is a production of Ronnie Duncan Studios. Our show is mixed, edited, and written by Thomas Duncan. Our music is thanks to Purple Planet Music. Our technical provider and distributor is Captivate FM. 